Well, good evening. How are we? All right. Um, hey, my name is Josh Story. I'm uh, one of the young adult pastors here at Christ Chapel. I mean, it's good uh, to be with you guys tonight. Um, if you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Uh, Luke 22 will be hanging out there uh, tonight. If you don't have a Bible, there's one of those uh, in the seat back in front of you. We'll also have the, the, the verses up on the screen um, as well. Um, so back in August, we started telling you guys this story about a guy named Jesus. Um, and it's become a really long story. Or like, it, it's taken us eight months to tell this story. Um, so it's a long story, but it's also a really epic story, right? Like along the way, we've seen this guy, Jesus, come on the scene. And man, he's doing just crazy things. He's like healing people and casting out demons and raising people from the dead. And he's just doing all these crazy miracles. And so we see just this um, unreal authority possessed by this guy, Jesus. But then on top of that, we see his character. And we see that um, on top of being authoritative, man, he has um, just this really gentleness about him, right? He's gentle and he's tender and he, he cares about people and he loves the people that, um, that the society says are unlovable, right? But, but then he's also this just ferocious teacher where, where he's coming in, he's just dropping bombs and all the, the, the spiritual elite and Pharisees are just kind of stunned and speechless. And so there's just, just a lot of complexity to this guy, Jesus, as we've been seeing, right? And so now we're getting to the very end of the story. And, and this ideally should be the most exciting part of the story, right? Because every story, or at least every good story, has this ending. And everyone wants to know, how does the story end, right? Like, like does it resolve? Is it a cliffhanger? Is it one of those, like, crazy, like, Bruce Willis was dead the whole time, kind of, like, plot twists, right? Um, it's like, like, what is, like, the end of the story? We just want to know how the story ends. And so theoretically, like, this should be the most exciting part because we get to see how the story ends, right? But here's my fear. My fear is that this ending won't actually be all that exciting because the majority of us already know how it ends, right? Like the majority, maybe not everybody, but I would assume that the majority of the people in this room already know how the story ends. The story ends by Jesus dying, right? And so why do we know that? Well, one, we know because Jesus already told us that's how it's going to end, right? In Luke 9 and Luke 18, Jesus says, hey, hey guys, just so you know, like I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to get arrested and I'm going to be handed over to the authorities and they're going to murder me. Right? So, so, so Jesus told us that, but then the second reason I think that we know how the story ends is because we live in the Bible Belt, right? And so we live in, in, in the Bible Belt, so everyone, for, for the most part, has heard the fact that Jesus dies on the cross. Like, that's what he did, right? And so we put crosses on our stages, and we put crosses around our necks and on T-shirts and coffee mugs, and we tattoo crosses on our bodies, and, and we, and we kind of commodify the cross because we're in the Bible Belt. Everyone knows that yeah, Jesus went to the cross, right? That's kind of how we view it. And, and so my fear is that what's happened is that the ending of this story has just kind of become white noise. My fear is that we've kind of come to a place where, yeah, 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 he dies. I, I, I know that. I heard that before. And what can happen is that the cross, the death of Jesus Christ becomes normal. And that's scary. It's scary that the death of Jesus could ever become normal. So what I want us to do tonight is, is really simple. I want to show you that the death of Jesus Christ is not normal. That it's something that should never become some kind of spiritual white noise of, okay, yeah, he, he died on the cross. I, I got it. Check. No, the death of Jesus Christ should transform us. And I think the reason that, that we allow it just to be, kind of become normal is because we, we've lost sight of what actually happened on the cross. So what I want us to do tonight is I, is I just want to show you what happened. Because I think that if we understand the gravity of what happened on the cross, then that will literally transform everything about us. So that's where we're going tonight. Um, let's dive in. Look with me in Luke 22. 
starting in verse 39. Um, just to kind of catch you up, uh, Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. They just had their meal, and so Jesus takes his boys out to the mount to pray, and that's where we find ourselves in verse 39. It says, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount, mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And, he, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. I right, stop right there. I think this is an incredibly insightful scene into the gravity of Jesus' death. Because what we see here is, is we see Jesus, who is in just incredible agony, incredible anxiety, right? And he, he comes and he's praying, and, and what he's praying is, Father, take this cup from me. Meaning, is there any way out of this? Like, Jesus knows that he's going to die. Like, that's been the plan all along, but he comes in his, in his please, Father, will you take this cup from me? Will you remove this? Is, is there any way out? Now, now, granted, he's still submitting to the Father's will. He's still trusting in the Father's will. He's saying, hey, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But that doesn't change the fact that he is so anxious. He, he's, he's wanting, he's pleading with God for any other way. Is there any other way this can happen? But then we see something that's even more insightful. In verse 44, it says that in being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, it could be really easy for us to, to read that line and think that Luke's just using hyperbole or he's um, kind of using some metaphorical language. Um, but uh, there have been a number of physicians, um, credible physicians, who, who have read this text and, and they have read that the whole story of the crucifixion and they all agree that they believe Jesus had a condition called hematidrosis. And what hematidrosis is is a really rare um, condition where if someone is under extreme anxiety, the capillaries in their sweat glands burst and they actually sweat blood. And it's a very rare condition, but it's most commonly seen in prisoners awaiting execution. So what we have here is we have Jesus who is so in pain, so stressed, so anxious that he's literally sweating blood over this. And this is insightful because up until this point, Jesus has been nothing short of confident and assertive and authoritative, right? Like every turn in the road, Jesus has been the man, right? And so now we see this vulnerable picture of Jesus, and he's on his knees, and he's pleading for a way out, and he's sweating blood. He is so anxious, so overwrought with just anxiety and stress. It makes us ask, what's going on here? Because, not, not to be crass, but man, if, if Jesus knew that this was happening, if he had 33 years to prepare for this, why, why now? Why is he so anxious now? Like, like, like you knew this was coming. What's, what's going on that makes you so anxious? So I want to show you what made him so anxious. He was anxious for, for two reasons, and the first reason was this. He knew the physical pain that he was about to endure. He knew the physical pain that he was about to endure. Um, if you keep reading, um, shortly after this, Jesus is arrested. Um, and then he then undergoes four different trials, and he kind of gets bounced around. And each trial, they're trying to try him for treason. And so Herod and, and Pilate, the Roman authorities, um, they're like, man, I can't find any guilt in this guy. I, like, I, I don't see what you're, you're saying. I don't think he's trying to overthrow Rome. I'm not, I'm not seeing any kind of like, rebel mentality in, in this guy. He seems really humble. 
And, and so they don't see any guilt in them, but the people have turned on Jesus, and they are demanding that they crucify him as someone who's committed treason. And so Pilate, not, not wanting a, a revolt, decides to, to give in to the people's demands, and so he says, okay, let's, let's convict him of treason. And, they, and the sentence for treason is crucifixion, and that's where the physical pain starts. And so let me just kind of describe to you what crucifixion entailed. Um, and I want to preface this by saying I, I don't want to be gruesome. I don't want to be dramatic. I don't want to be super gory. Um, but I want to be accurate. I, I want to adequate, adequately describe to you what crucifixion entails. Because I think one of the reasons we allow the crucifixion just to kind of become normal Christianese white noise is because we don't understand the gravity of what actually took place. So here's what we know about crucifixion historically. The first part of crucifixion was called the scourging. What the scourging was, was that was the moment when the Roman soldiers would flog the prisoner in order to speed up death on the cross. So they would take this whip, and this whip was a long whip with, with these leather strands attached to it, and woven into the leather strands were pieces of bone and metal. And they would take the prisoner, and they would whip him 39 times, 39 times being the minimum. If, if the, the Roman soldier was feeling extra sadistic that day, he may beat them more, but they flogged him at least 39 times. And so you can imagine the prisoner laying there, and they whipped him in the back, and it hit the top of his shoulders and ran all the way down, and with each blow, the metal and the bone ripped apart his flesh until his muscles and his veins were exposed. And so if you survived the scourging, a lot of guys bled out, but if you survived the scourging, what they would do next is they would take the horizontal beam of the cross, and they would strap it to your back and make you carry your own cross up the hill to the place where they would execute you. And so what the Gospels tell us is that Jesus was so weak from the scourging that, that he couldn't even carry his own cross. So the soldiers pick this random guy out of the crowd named Simon of Cyrene. And Simon helps Jesus carry it to the hill. And so once they're on the hill, they, they put the beam down on the ground and they, and they lay the prisoner out horizontal. And they take his arms and they take these spikes that are about seven inches long and they drive them right in the middle of his wrist where the median nerve runs and they crush his nerve. And they drive these spikes into his wrist, and they go to the other wrist, and they do the same thing. And then they go down to his feet, and they take that same spike, and they crush his nerves and his feet as they drive the, the nail into his feet. Then once he is securely on the cross, they, they take the cross, and they raise it up, and, and, and you're hanging there. And from that point on, all they do is they wait as you slowly suffocate. See, because the way that the nails allowed you to hang is that um, your, your diaphragm and your muscles were, were in a place where you were, in, you were constantly in the inhale position. So if you wanted to exhale, what you had to do is, is you had to raise up on the nail that was driven through your feet, tearing at your feet until the tarsal bones locked, and then you slumped back down on the cross. So if you wanted to breathe, that was the course of action. You would raise yourself up and raise yourself back down, not forgetting the fact that you don't have a back anymore. So your bloody exposed back is rubbing against the coarse wood of the cross. And so that was how you breathed until you became so exhausted that you just gave up. Then slowly you would just suffocate. But if you didn't die quick enough, the Roman soldiers would take a pipe and they would break your legs to make sure that you could not breathe or raise yourself up at all. It was an absolutely brutal, barbaric way to go. So when we're talking about why Jesus was anxious, it's because he understood the physical pain that was coming. 
he understood that he was about to experience pain unlike any other. So that's one reason. The second reason that he was, more, that he was anxious was because he also understood that he was going to endure the pain of God's judgment. He was definitely anxious about the physical pain, but I would maybe even argue that he was more anxious about incurring the weight and the pain and the gravity of God's judgment. See, because I said that Jesus came to die, right? That was the point. That's how the story ends. The whole point of Jesus coming was for him to die, but I haven't really explained why he came to die. Jesus came to die because he is to be the ultimate sacrifice for sin. He came to die so that he may pay the penalty for the sins of humanity. You see, since the beginning of history, the penalty for sin has always been death. We see this first in the Garden of Eden. God, God creates this garden, and it's incredible, right? And there's no sin in the world. Everything's perfect. And he takes Adam and Eve, and he says, hey, you have access to everything. And eat freely from any tree. Everything you see belongs to you. I just ask one thing of you. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you do, you're going to die. I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty reasonable request. Right? Like, like, like God's not holding out on Adam and Eve. He's not trying to rob them of any joy. He's saying, no, no, everything you see is yours. You have access to it all. Eat freely. Enjoy yourself. I just ask you not to eat from this tree, because if you do, you're going to die. But Adam and Eve decide that they're going to rebel, so they rebel against God, and they eat from the tree. But guess what happens? They don't die, at least not immediately. And for some of us, maybe we hear that, and we think, well, then God's a liar. No, God's gracious. See, because what happens is that um, when they sin, they realize that they're naked, and they feel shame for the first time. And in that moment, guilt enters the world, shame enters the world, and they recognize their shame, and so they go and they hide from God. So God comes walking through, through the garden trying to find him, and he says, hey, where are you? And Adam says, I'm over here. I'm hiding because I'm naked. And one of the most tender questions I can possibly imagine, God says, who told you that you're naked? Who told you that you were naked? Who, who told you that? That's what God does next is he kills an animal, and he covers their shame. He covers their nakedness with the skin of the animal. So what God does is he's, he said, hey, the penalty for sin is death, but God in his grace decides to kill the animal instead of Adam and Eve. And thus we have the first sacrifice for sin. If you keep reading it in the Bible, God institutes a, a sacrificial system where, where if, if we want our sin to be cleansed, our sin to be paid for, it's only paid for by the blood of a spotless lamb. So that's how sin has historically been paid for in the Old Testament. But even so, that's just a temporary fix. It's just a band-aid on the gaping wound of our sin problem. And so for all the scripture, all the prophets have been pointing to this moment where the ultimate sacrifice is going to come, right? Where, where, where one day there's going to be an ultimate sacrifice, and it's going to be um, forever, and we won't have to sacrifice the animals anymore because our sin will be paid for once and for all. And so that's what Jesus is coming to do. He's coming to die in our place, to die for the sins of the world. That's incredible but it means that he also has to incur the judgment and the wrath of God. He has to absorb the wrath of God for our sins, and that's weighty. It's weighty. And we see this take place in Luke 23. Let's get ahead to Luke 23, we'll starting in verse 44. Luke says, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And this is a weighty, weighty scene. What Luke tells us right off the bat is that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there is darkness over the whole land. That probably means nothing to you. Um, But let me explain why that's significant. Um, The way that they counted, the sixth hour was noon, and the ninth hour was three o'clock. So in the middle of the day, from noon to three o'clock in the afternoon, there is a darkness over the whole land. That's not normal, right? But the reason that's significant is because in the Old Testament, when it talks about the judgment of God, it's always associated with darkness. When the Old Testament prophets would talk about um, the day of the Lord or the day of judgment, it was always marked by darkness. Okay, so let me give you just a couple examples to, to show you why this is significant. Um, Amos 5, 18 through 20 says this. It says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Check out Zephaniah 1.15. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And then if you don't actually believe that the Old Testament relates to the New, New, New Testament, check out Amos 8, 9 through 10. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. So the fact that at noon there is darkness over the land is a clear sign from God that, hey, I'm judging Jesus. And in the midst of the darkness, we see just this pain and agony of God pouring out his wrath on Jesus, judging Jesus for the sins of the world. But then something crazy happens. In the ninth hour, Luke says this. It says in verse 46, it says, Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last So after three hours of God judging Christ on the cross, three hours of darkness, at the ninth hour, Jesus breathes his last. That's crazy. Because what Jewish historians tell us is that the ninth hour is the time of day when the Jewish people would go to the temple and offer sacrifices. So at the moment in time when everyone's supposed to go offer their sacrifices, Jesus breathes his last breath. And God declares to the world, this is the sacrifice. I have judged him. I have judged the sin of the world. And he has breathed his last breath. And so it is finished. 
And in that moment, the sacrifice took place. That's unreal. That's unreal. And what Luke says is that in that moment, the veil was torn which means that all of a sudden, because of what Christ had done, because our sin had been poured out on Christ, the wrath of God for our sin had been poured out on Christ, the veil was torn, meaning that we now have a right relationship with God. We have access to the Father. We have access to God. That is crazy. This is why the death of Jesus Christ should never be normal. It should never be just some kind of spiritual white noise because what we see is that the God of the universe wrapped himself in human flesh, and he came to earth. And he allowed his own creation to flog him, to beat him, to drive nails through his wrists and nails through his feet, to watch him suffocate and to mock him. But in doing so, he took the penalty for sin once and for all. That's crazy. Nothing about that should be normal to us. And if you're anything like me, there, there comes a point in time when we hear this, and personally, I, I think, why? I mean, this is heavy stuff. The crucifixion is heavy. Carrying the weight of the world's sin on your shoulders, that's heavy. Why on earth would Jesus choose to do this? Well, as cliche as this may sound, it's because he loves you. As cliche and as churchy as that may sound, it's because he loves his people. And Romans 5.8 tells us that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So knowing that we could never earn our way to God, knowing that there was never anything that we could do, he came in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our brokenness, and he laid down his life for us because he loved us. And my fear is that there may be some people in, in the room tonight who, who hear this and they think, man, um, that sounds great, um, but I have a hard time believing that, that Jesus actually loves me, that God loves me, that he came and he died for, for me. Like he may have came and died for you, preacher boy, but he, he, he didn't die for me because you don't know me. You don't know my past. You don't know what I've been walking through. You don't know the skeletons in my closet. You don't know. I highly doubt that my sin was covered on the cross. And if that's you, can I lovingly and gladly tell you that you're wrong? And the beauty of what happened on the cross, well, the reason this should never be normal is because no matter where you fall, no matter what's in your past, Jesus paid the penalty for sin once and for all. And he has provided access to the Father. He has provided a right relationship with the Father. He has covered all of your guilt, all of your shame. His blood covered that. I mean, if you're in this room tonight and, and, and you hear this, and this is the first time that you understand what the cross has accomplished for you, man, let's chat. And come find me or Ben or Tyler or Ryan or any of our staff. And we would love to talk to you about what this means, about what Christ has actually accomplished for you, because I want you to know that wherever you are, the cross of Jesus Christ has accomplished right relationship with God for you, that all of your guilt, all of your shame is taken care of. It's phenomenal. That should never be normal. Man, but if you're in here today and you are a believer, um, I, I hope this does something for our heart. And I hope that this stirs our heart for worship. 
And I hope that we have this new understanding of, man, this is what Christ did. He bled and he died and he hung on a cross and experienced the most excruciating death of all time for me. And I'm made right, I'm made new, I'm cleansed. I have access to the Father. I hope that stirs our affections for God and we can approach the throne with boldness and with confidence and we rejoice because that's what Christ has accomplished for us. I, I hope that happens in your heart tonight. I hope there's a rejoicing that takes place, but I also hope there's a weight that sinks in. Because yes, we are forgiven. Yes, we are redeemed. Yes, we are cleansed. But that came at a price. That forgiveness, that cleansing, that redemption, that came at a price, and that price was the life of Jesus Christ. So I, I fear that we allow this thing to become white noise because we don't really dwell or meditate on the fact of what this cost to Jesus Christ. So as we go back into worship, as we continue to sing about what Christ has done for us on the cross, man, my hope is that this begins to slowly transform our hearts where, yes, we are rejoicing and we are glad, but there's this weight knowing that my sin is what nailed him to the tree. I mean, I hope that, that stirs you. I hope, I hope that makes you hate sin. I hope that, that moves you to a place where it's like, I can't be the same anymore. I can't just nonchalantly walk through life pretending like everything's okay. Like, this is weighty. Man, so may we rejoice, but may we have a healthy awareness that this costs Jesus his life. That we are free. We are redeemed. But that came at a price. That was Jesus' life. And that should never be normal. Should never be normal. Let's pray. Father, I am I'm so grateful um, tonight for the reality um, that we have been redeemed. You have provided a way for us to have the right relationship with you, that we are made new, that, that there is no guilt, there's no shame. As Romans 8 says, that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, I, I praise you for that truth. Lord, may we never lose sight of the gravity of the crucifixion. May, may we never just commodify the cross. May we stare at the cross with awe and wonder. May our hearts break for the fact that our sin nailed Jesus to the tree. May that not be lost on us. May that move us to a place where we hate sin, where we despise our sin and we run to you. Lord, you're so good and we praise you for what you have done. May we rejoice in that today. Let's turn something we pray. Amen.